Welcome to the Satiated Podcast, where we explore physical and emotional hunger, satiation, and healing your relationship with your food and body. I'm your host, Stephanie Mara Fox, your somatic nutritional counselor. I'm honored to get to talk with Dr. Anita Johnston today. Anita is a clinical psychologist and certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor, working in the field of women's issues and eating disorders for over 35 years. She is the author of the best-selling book, Eating in the Light of the Moon, and co-creator of the Light of the Moon Cafe, a series of online interactive courses and women's support circles and soul hunger workshops. She is the executive clinical director of iPono, Hawaii Eating Disorder Treatment Program. Welcome, Anita. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to talk with you today. And before we even dive in, I wanted to share how much your book has been such a huge part of my own life in that when I was deep into healing my own relationship with food, my therapist at the time recommended I read your book. (laughs) And at the time, I was really learning about how to sit and be with myself. And reading Mm. your book was the moments that I would practice slowing down and just being with what is. So whoever is listening to this, and if you haven't read Eating in the Light of the Moon, I often recommend it. It's on my suggested reading list, like go pick up this book. And, you know, I want to dive into how you got into this work and even how the inspiration for your book got created. It's a really long story (laughs) because I started a long time ago, but the book came out way, way back when I was working with folks who were struggling with disordered eating. And mind you, this was a long time ago. This is back in 1982. (laughs) So there really wasn't much that had been written. And there was really very little research. Most of it had been done on young white female college students. And I was working in Hawaii at the time. And I was seeing such a diversity of folks struggling with the whole range of disordered eating, everything from full-blown anorexia, which had just then become a household term because Karen Carpenter had recently died and that made a lot of news. Bulimia was really just entered into the DSM at that time and binge eating disorder wasn't wasn't even on the table. And so I was supervising a psychology student that was doing her doctoral dissertation on the incidence of eating disorders in Hawaii. So we just kept meeting to talk about what was happening. And we were joined by a social worker who had had her own recovery experience. And we were just trying to figure out what was going on. And we kept seeing so many people struggling. We said, well, there should be a center here. There's a lot of people that need this help. And after we said it for about the fifth time, we looked at each other and went, okay, I guess we're it. So um, (laughs) we we created a a center and it was girls and women only back then, for whatever reason, of all ages, all sizes, all ethnicities all walks of life, but all struggling with some form of body image or eating. So as I started working with these individuals, and the three of us would meet, we're just trying to figure it out. So many of my clients were asking me about some of the concepts I was talking about that really came out of my just listening to these girls and women to try to figure out, okay, what is it? First of all, back then, why was it female? Second of all, why these particular girls and women? And third, why was the struggle with food and their bodies. And so as I would listen, I could hear 
that their stories were similar to old fairy tales, <laughs> mm. like the Emperor's New Clothes, mm-hmm. where they were very emotionally sensitive, highly intuitive individuals who could perceive subtle realities. But those around them said, what's wrong with you? Or you're weird or, or whatever. And so out of this desire to fit in, at, well, really to belong, which is something we all want, but they confuse that with fitting in, they got entangled in trying to look a certain way and to feel a certain way and be a certain way. And the food came in as a way of trying to make that happen. So how the book got started, it started off as just a a little booklet for my clients because they wanted to know, well, where can they read more about these concepts? And I went, hasn't been written. So I started writing the book and then started using more and more stories and fairy tales that seemed to speak to what they were struggling with. Yeah, that's so amazing. You know, I'm hearing kind of the synchronicity in, you know, finding the people and the places and it all just coming Mm -hmm. together. And I'm wondering in your process of you know, writing and eating in the light of the moon, coming off of also the clients you were seeing, how much you feel like metaphor and myth has supported individuals in understanding why they're doing what they're doing with food and helping them heal. Well, what I discovered, and it started off, my my daughters were going to Waldorf school at the time, and they would come home and everything in Waldorf schools is taught in stories. So they'd come home with stories about, oh, we learned about Prince division and Prince multiplication. And I'm going, oh my gosh, I would probably know my times tables if I had learned them that way. And so I started to realize, oh, you can use stories and metaphors to help people understand some very complex things. And also in a way that can be a little disarming because they're so caught up in it. And so it was a way, another way that was not so threatening of exploring and approaching, you know, what the struggle was. And so I started using metaphors. And then I started to see that I called it back then because I didn't know any better that when a metaphor would click, when someone would have an insight and they go, oh my gosh, I got it. I would see what I call the lights going off in someone's eyes. I could just see this this something light up. Well, now we know, this is, I love so much, uh, neuroscience tells us, and I'm a bit of a geek about that, is that there's a part of a fold in our brain right above our right ear. And when we get a sudden insight, what that fold, it's called the anterior superior temporal gyrus. And what it does is it shoots out a blast of gamma waves, which is mm. the highest electrical frequency in the brain. And that's how new neural pathways are made. So when you're using metaphor, one of the things it allows for is an instantaneous kind of insider understanding that affects the psyche on multiple levels and has a transforming function, whether the metaphor is from songs or poems, but it also affects the brain and creates new neural pathways. As time has gone on, I started to see that it worked, but now I'm understanding more and more how it works and why it works. That's amazing and incredible. And I'm a a big fan of metaphor and analogy. Mm -hmm. And what have you found in your work, even if you could provide an example of a metaphor that has really clicked with those you've worked with, that they start to understand, oh, this Mm -hmm. isn't my fault of what's Mm -hmm. playing out with my relationship with food. Yeah. You want to hear one? Yeah. (laughs) I'll share you. This is my very favorite one. And it's my favorite because to this day, I get emails from people around the world 
telling me, oh, when I heard this metaphor, I got it. And so I'll share the metaphor and then I'll break it down for you and tell you exactly what it's doing. Mm -hmm. So we always start with your imagination, right? That's our superpower. And I have clients that say, well, I don't have a good imagination. And I like to say, what do you think worry is? right? Worry is a bad use of a good imagination. So we start with that. Imagine you're on the banks of a raging river. It's pouring down rain. You slip, you fall in, you're drowning. You're getting pulled down through the rapids. And along comes a big log and you grab on. And the log saves your life. It keeps your head above water when surely you would have been pulled down. And eventually it carries you to a place in the river where the water is calm. And from there, you can see the riverbank but you can't get there because of the log. So the irony is as you're clinging to the log, you can't swim. So the very thing that, that saved your life is now getting in the way of you going where you want to go in life. And to make it more complicated, there's always someone on the riverbank yelling, let go of the log, let go of the log. And you feel like an absolute idiot because you can't let go of the log. Well, the way I see it is letting go of that log may not be the best thing to do initially. Because what happens if you let go of that log, start to swim to shore, get halfway there and realize, oh shoot, I don't have the strength to make it. Well, that means you don't have the strength to make it back to the log either and you're really sunk. So I believe we all have a wise part of ourselves that will not, will not let us let go of anything until we're good and ready. So what do you do instead? Well, let go of the log and you practice floating. And when you start to sink, you grab back on. And then you let go of the log and you try treading water. And when you get tired, you grab back on. And then you let go of the log and you swim around it once and grab back on, twice and grab back on, 10 times, 100 times, 200 times. Whatever it takes for you to have the strength and confidence to make it to shore, then you let go of the log. Why? Because you've put it out of a job. So the idea is now notice I'm not talking about eating disorders at all, right? I'm talking about a log in the river. But people can relate to it because, for example, when you use metaphor, it speaks to the emotional experience. So there's a big difference between saying, oh my gosh, I have a lot of paperwork and I'm drowning in paperwork, right? When we say I'm drowning, we totally know what that feels like. And so I'm bringing in the emotions and the sensations, and I'm connecting to the psyche in that way. I'm also taking away some of the shame because well, who wouldn't grab onto the log? Of course, you're going to grab onto the log. I mean, not only that, it has a good thing to do. Right. When you're when you're drowning, that's not the problem. The problem is and here I'm bringing in the concept of skills. You don't quite have the skills yet to do what you need to do and take care of yourself and go where you want to go in life without these skills. And you're going to be holding on to that log, of course, until you develop those skills, until you learn how to swim or, or whatever. And so, again, I'm bringing in a lot of the experience of the struggle with disordered eating into a story about a river and a log. But I'm introducing some what I think are important recovery concepts important because we live in a world with so much diet mentality. Everyone's thinking, well, willpower, I don't have enough willpower. It's like, no, it has nothing to do with that. Life sends stuff our way that, you know, we have to cope with. And if we don't have a whole lot of resources and support, we're going to grab onto whatever we can as well we should. But there comes a time you can learn these skills and they don't take special DNA. It's like their skills, like driving a car or riding a bike or, or 
playing the piano. Anyone can learn it with a little bit of practice. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that example. I was already, you know, as you were even going <laughs> through that metaphor, uh, connecting all of the experiences that even those that I work with go through mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. starting to have a new perspective of why they reached for food to begin with. And I think that is such a beautiful example of you needed that log. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that, <laughs> that was your resource. Yeah. And that's what metaphor can do. One of my favorite things that metaphor can do, because it's very transformative, but it can take something that appears to be negative and flip it into something positive. And the reason why that's so important is that when you're filled with shame and self-loathing, there's not a lot of energy for recovery. So anytime that I can flip that and say, well, no wonder you did it. Well, of course you did it. It's like, oh, okay, now we've got some energy for healing and can point us towards that. Yeah, absolutely. And shame and judgment and guilt are such huge parts of what Mm -hmm. someone is bringing forth when they're beginning to try to heal their relationship with food. That also keeps them stuck to that log. They can Mm -hmm. see where they want to go. And I loved the example of sometimes you actually need to first kind of circle around the log many Mm -hmm. times because how much shame also comes in of, I'm still doing it. Why am I still doing it? It's still happening. Why am I still doing this? Like you're doing it for a reason. And this just maybe needs to happen for a period of time as you're building up the strength to leave the log. Right. And I think that's one of the hardest parts in recovery. There's this period of time and it's dreadful because there's a period of time between when you get it, like you go, oh my God, I got this. And the development of the skill set that's required. And so that's when people say, why do I keep doing this? I know better. What's wrong with me? And it's a dangerous place in some ways, because that is where the judgment is going to come rushing in. And the judgment gets in the way of recovery. So you have to bring in what I consider the antidote to judgment, which is curiosity. Huh? Well, how come, how come now I found myself binging? Yeah, I know, blah, blah, blah. But what is it that I'm needing to strengthen so that the next time I'm in this situation, I'll have a different outcome. And so that kind of curiosity is really valuable. Yeah, I completely agree with that, that as soon as we take away the judgment and the shame and the guilt, it's like, oh, can I bring in this compassion and this curiosity Mm -hmm. of this Mm -hmm. is playing out to try and support and protect me. And Mm -hmm. if I start to take that lens of this experience, Mm -hmm. it actually does get you where you want to go even a little bit faster. Not that you need to get there as fast as possible, but you know that sometimes it's Mm -hmm. the judgment of what you're doing that tends to slow the healing process down. I would say always, <laughs> it's, you can count on it. The judgment's going to slow it down and create some really huge blocks that then it becomes so much more effortful when it doesn't have to be. Yeah. What have you found in your experience is kind of pieces that are missing? You know, I've been working in this field for over a decade now, and you start to kind of pick out of like, wow, this is really missing from this field to kind of support people and getting to where they want to go. Hearing one piece for you has been metaphor. Is there anything else that you've kind of picked up that 
you know, would be mm-hmm. supportive for people to know of like, hey, this is a piece that would be supportive on your healing path? Yeah, I think it will. It comes out of what I understand recovery to be. And essentially, you know, people think, well, they're going back to where they were before the eating disorder. It's like, no, that's what this is about. This is not just symptom removal, right? Mm-hmm. This is about what recovery is, is it's moving into a place where you become more of who you truly are. And so I think a missing piece is really understanding, yeah, what is recovery? And I believe that it's a strong connection to your authentic self and claiming the uniqueness of your being. And we live in a culture that really discourages us from that tremendously. And there's a pattern that can get developed in childhood that I think it's important when I share this concept with clients, they go, oh, now I see why I developed an eating disorder, how it had to happen. And more importantly, what now I'm needing to do different. So it's this idea that we're all born with two very powerful drives, right? One is the drive for connection and attachment because we are mammals. We don't hatch out of an egg and just go on our way, right? No, we have to attach to our caregivers in order to survive. And we're also, though, born with as humans, another equally powerful drive. And that's the drive for authenticity. That's the drive to become who we're meant to be, to be our unique person that's as unique as our thumbprint. But what happens in childhood is that often these two drives come into conflict. And guess which one wins? Attachment, it has to. And what that means is that we try to be how we imagine our caregivers want us to be. So little kid wants a cookie. Mommy says, no, you can't have a cookie. We're having dinner in an hour. And little kid goes, I want a cookie. I want a cookie. And mommy says, if you don't cut that out right now, you're not going to get any cookies at all. And little kid goes, okay, I don't want a cookie. Now, what little kid has done, and we all do it, we have to do it, is perceived how we need to be in order to get our needs met. Mm-hmm. Now, to make it a little more complicated, what I believe is folks who struggle with disordered eating are very emotionally sensitive, highly intuitive, and really good at picking up on how others want them to be, how they want them to look and act and think and feel and so on. So they become very adept whenever there's a conflict between authenticity and connection, they choose connection. And the problem with that is twofold. One, that pattern that gets created in childhood gets carried into adulthood when really authenticity needs to win. The other part of that is whenever we choose attachment and connection over authenticity, that disconnect from self creates a great deal of tension in our being. If you think of a towel being twisted in two different directions, and that tension eventually becomes very painful and we'll grab onto anything in order to try to cope with that pain. And it could be food, it could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be sex, it could be shopping. But that's how something can become really addictive. And so the task then, if you're moving towards recovery, is how do you claim your authentic self, all of who you are, you know, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, you know, passionate, all those different aspects, because that's what recovery looks like. And so one of the skill sets is learning how to be yourself 
and be in relationship with another at the same time because we're social animals, right? And so what happens is someone thinks, okay, well, I can be myself as long as I'm by myself. Mm-hmm. And often the job of the eating disorder is to create a bubble that you're in and nobody else can come in. So, you know, there's that. And then there's the other part of entering a relationship and abandoning yourself at the doorstep, which feels really bad. And of course, then you have to turn to whatever eating behaviors help you cope. So I think understanding this process of really learning how, how to be yourself and be in relationship at the same time is crucial to recovery. That is what recovery is. Yes, yes, yes. I'm absolutely agreeing with everything that you're saying right now. And I've totally seen that as well, that some of the individuals I've worked with that struggle with their food are some of the wisest, like, Uh and I say sensitive in regards of like, that is their superpower. Like they are picking up so much in their environment Mm -hmm. and that food came in because no one knew how to meet them in this superpower that they have of being sensitive and picking up things and intuiting things. And to step back into that can also feel incredibly scary. Totally scary. That's why you need skills, right? And the skills that, mm, sad to say, you're not going to learn in school, right? And most of us certainly didn't learn it in our families. And, And so I think one of the most important skill, in fact, I believe in total, complete recovery, recovered, period, done, end of story. I've been doing this long enough to know people that 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 is exactly what's happened. People I'm very close to. It's not even close to a part of their life, the disordered eating. But I've never, ever seen anyone fully, completely recover without this skill. And that's the skill of assertive communication. Because that is how you learn to stay connected to self and still engage with others and communicate in a way that honors your experience and also honors the experience of the other person. Yeah, I completely agree with that as well. And oftentimes we're not, like you just said, we're not getting those skills of learning how to communicate and even be in disagreement or tension or not on the same page with those we love and those we're in relationship with, we don't pick those up from our family Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we don't learn them in school. (laughs) If I had it my way, it'd be taught in every school in the country, but I don't get to have it my way. (laughs) So I teach it as best I can. I create courses for people to learn this. It's like, you got to get this one. Yeah. And so when we're talking about kind of assertive communication, what does that even mean? Like, how would you define that? What does that look like? I think it's the ability to identify, accept, and express your feelings in a way that is honest and straightforward and kind. Mm -hmm. There's a lot in that, right? You have to learn, first of all, you have to develop emotional literacy. You have to learn what your feelings are. You have to learn the nature of emotions, which is really hard because again, we're not taught that. We're taught that emotions are like things and they're not at all. And we're taught they're good and bad and right and wrong. And they're waves of energy. You have to learn how to ride them. You know, what I often find is that that communication that we're talking about, it first has to start within ourselves. We have to learn how do I communicate with myself first and noticing how do I feel about this? Because it can feel really scary. And I find this with those that I work with that to have the conversation, the assertive conversation with someone else can feel anxiety provoking, overwhelming, take you outside your window of tolerance. And so it first has to start with, okay, let me practice of... 
I didn't really feel great about that conversation that just happened, but how do I feel about it? Can I journal about it? Can I check in with myself about it first to just express how I feel? And then the practice can be taking it out towards communicating with other people. But I think it first starts with self first right. of just owning, this is how I feel and it's okay to feel how I feel about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something about understanding the nature of emotions that's really so important. And sometimes you don't have to do anything with them. Just sit and notice them as they come in, peak and pass, and then come back in and peak and pass. So I think you're right. You start off simply by noticing. You don't have to do anything with them. Yeah. And I think that's such a different approach to our emotions that takes time because Mm -hmm. often, like when you were giving that example of the little kid, what I find is these food behaviors start so young is that it's, oh, no one's there to hold space for this, or they don't know how to meet me in this. And so food comes in to help me meet myself in it. And so to say, oh, wait, I'm going to meet myself in it without food. You know, that takes Mm -hmm. a lot of practice over and over and over again. And sometimes food might continue to come in to help you Mm -hmm. come into contact with yourself. And that's okay, too. Well, there's a reason for that. We're hardwired to turn to food to soothe and comfort us. If you think of your very first experience on the planet and you're in distress, and what are you given? The breast or the bottle? And you go, oh. So we're built to use food to help us soothe. And there's a reason we call it comfort food. The problem is when that becomes the only way you know how to soothe and comfort yourself. Yeah, that's so funny. I say that all the time, but it's like, absolutely. Food is always going to be a resource. Uh I never want Uh you to take it off Uh of your list of things that are going to support you because biologically, like, yeah, we're, we're just naturally drawn to that from the time Uh that we're born. And we have this embodied memory of, Uh like you said, like breast or bottle. It's like, Oh, I get into relationship Uh with this food and I feel safe. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, we never have to take that off of your list right. of choices. It's of just building onto it. Right. You just increase your repertoire of responses. Yeah. Yeah. What have you found as you're kind of building on people's repertoire, other things that have been supportive for those that you've worked with that it's like food mm-hmm. and? <laughs> well, I think one of the first steps is really differentiating the different kinds of hunger. And again, this is where metaphor comes in. And unfortunately, in our culture, just like, you know, the Inuits, they have a lot of different words for snow. And we have snow, sleet, you know, not a lot of words. And indigenous cultures in the tropics, they have a lot of different words for rain and we have rain. And so it is with hunger. We have to differentiate first the difference between physical and non-physical hungers. So that goes with, of course, developing interoceptive awareness and, and really learning how to do that. But the metaphor I like to use for that is imagine, back to imagination, right? Two tanks. And I'm going to call them something fancy like tank A and tank B. And tank A is the tank you fill when you need physical nourishment. You fill it with food. Tank B is the tank you fill when you need emotional or spiritual nourishment. And you fill it with things like attention, affection, appreciation, meditation, prayer, and so on. But most people don't know this. They think there's just one tank. 
And so before they know it, either tank A is full and overflowing and they're still hungry, or they don't even want to get close to tank A because it seems like the bottomless pit. Mm-hmm. So they would restrict. Learning your hunger and satiety cues is an important part of this process because that's how you tease the two tanks apart. And so I might work with someone and finding out what they are for them. But then there's the second part of this because you learn your hunger and satiety cues. You know them totally. And, and you're reaching for the pizza and you check in, not a hunger signal in sight, but you still want to eat that pizza. Well, in that instance, you've just tumbled down Alice in Wonderland's rabbit hole and landed smack dab in tank B. And in tank B, pizza's not pizza. Mm-hmm. Food isn't food. What is it? It's a concrete physical symbol of another kind of hunger you're experiencing and may not even know about. And so what happens is we confuse the symbol for the real deal. So, for example, you can have a thousand American flags. Are you more free? (laughs) Right. We know. No, it's just the symbol of freedom. It's not freedom itself. And so what happens then is food becomes the symbol of other kinds of hungers that you're experiencing. So then the question to ask yourself is, what's the feeling I'm trying not to feel? Right. Because that's really often when food comes into into that vacuum. So you might want to look at the course of your day and you can say, well, maybe I'm, I'm annoyed at that jerk who cut me off on the freeway or or I'm concerned about an upcoming parent teacher meeting or annoyed at something my boss said or you just do a scan. But most of the time. The answer you get is going to be, "Mm, I don't know, I feel fine, because it's those other hungers, they're hidden, but they're hidden in the food itself, which is so cool. But they're coded in that metaphor. So then you can look at the very foods you're struggling with, because they're talking to you, and they're going to tell you what the other hungers are once you learn how to crack the code. So I'll give you a brief synopsis for doing this. If any of your listeners are interested, you can get a PDF at lightofthemooncafe.com forward slash S-A-T for satiated. (laughs) And here's how you crack the code. And again, thinking that we're all unique. These are some categories, though, to get you started to think metaphorically. So sweet foods usually have to do with either feeling like there's not enough sweetness in your life, or you're not sweet enough. Now, just think of the way we use the word sweet. We say, oh, she's such a sweetheart, or that was a really sweet thing to do, or whoa, sweet. I mean, when you think about how we were looking for the sweet spot, right? So we use the foods metaphorically. We just don't realize that. But when we're struggling with those foods, they're talking. So crunchy, salty foods are usually connected with unexpressed anger and frustration, like uh, 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 you want to bite someone's head off. Warm foods, soups and stews are, have to do with a typically a craving for emotional warmth. Spicy foods are often connected with either a fear of or a desire for, because this works both ways, uh, excitement, stimulation and change mm. and chocolate We know this from Valentine's Day, right? Love, romance, sensuality, sexuality. And so when you can start to look at those foods you struggle with, not as the enemy, but as something that's trying to communicate something to you, but it's talking in the language of metaphor and you learn how to crack that code, it not only can it be astounding, 
but it actually even gets to be a little bit of fun. I'll give you an example. Like I had a client, she struggled with bulimia and I said to her, I said, okay, if there were any food that you wished you could eat and there was zero consequences, no consequences whatsoever, what food would that be? And she said, oh, vanilla ice cream with strawberries on top. I said, okay, I want you to imagine I've never had it. And you're going to tell me what's so wonderful about it. Mm. And she said, it's sweet, it's smooth, and it's refreshing. Now, when we took a look at what was going on in her life, her boyfriend was accusing her of not being sweet enough. She had hit a really rough patch with her parents that she was desperately wanting to smooth out. And she was in a dead end job in need of a refreshing change. So one food, three issues that needed to be addressed. And so it kind of works like that. Sometimes it's in the actual language of the food itself, but it's really pretty amazing when you can start to crack that code. Oh, cool. I've seen that as well with those that I've worked with that if we bring in just again, that word curiosity, curiosity Mm -hmm. around why this food, you know, out of all the foods that you could crave or all the foods that Mm -hmm. you could reach for, why this one? And it provides some really interesting information back from this is how our body's trying to communicate to us. And it, and it can be connected to memories. It can be the way in which you eat those foods or who you associate with those foods. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on the, the stories that I hear, it just kind of blows my mind how, when you can get to what the essence is that you're really wanting, then you can say, okay, now how can I create that in other ways? But the cool thing is, is once you realize you can tap into the very foods that you're so afraid of. And if you listen metaphorically, you're going to learn some just incredible things. Yeah. And I really appreciate you just bringing in that particular example with that client of starting to take the judgment out of the foods that you crave like delabel them because oftentimes the foods that we want to reach for we're already telling ourselves I shouldn't crave that I shouldn't eat that I shouldn't reach for that but it kind of squashes the ability to hear mm-hmm. the body wisdom of of why why that food so if we take away all of the associations that we have with that food that's when you can kind of more hear the teaching that's trying mm-hmm. to come through That's why diets don't work. And we know they don't work as we've seen the research over and over and over again. But Mm -hmm. I think the reason is, is that you're throwing away some valuable clues that are going to help you resolve the real issues, those real issues that are driving the disordered eating behavior. You're just throwing away the evidence and not having an opportunity to learn what you need to learn. So of course, the problem with food is going to continue. How could it not? Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked about a lot of different layers here. And what do you find, like, depending upon, you know, some individuals who are listening, they're right at the beginning, some are in the middle, some are maybe trying to come to the end. And I also just want to add that I agree with you that I think there's a lot of controversy that some people are like, you know, full recovery is impossible. Like this is always going to be something that's a part of your path. But I agree with you that I have seen full recovery possible. And that is something that individuals are capable of, that you having an issue with food doesn't have to be your whole life experience or part of your story. And I'm wondering, like, what is a a first baby step that you find that people can start to take, 
you know, mm. as they're entering into bringing in this experience of metaphor and getting mm. curious about, you know, why they do the things they do with food? Well, to start off with, I think when I think of recovery, I like to think of it as a train with many stops. So there are some people that they want to get off at the first stop. And if that means for them, no more behaviors, even though they're still having the thoughts or the impulses, that's fine. As long as they know that there are other stops down the road, should they choose to go there. So, you know, I think that's an individual choice, but it's important to know that, yeah, at the end of the line, total completely recovery is possible. But to start off with really has to do with finding ways to connect with yourself. Because at the Light of the Moon Cafe at uh, IPONO, my residential facility, there's nothing I can do to take away someone's eating disorder. I don't have that kind of power and I'm not going to. But what we do do and what my focus is, is strengthening that person's connection to their authentic self. That's going to take care of the eating disorder. And that's what's going to put the eating disorder out of a job. And so to just to keep in the big picture that that's kind of where you're headed, but to start off with little tiny baby steps. And I think it, it is important to understand that recovery is possible. Like I said, you you need to have hope before you even begin this journey because sometimes it's really tough and sometimes it's scary and sometimes it's disoriented. And I like to use the metaphor of a labyrinth instead of a maze. In a labyrinth, it's twisting and turning, but there's no in and out. The labyrinth just takes you to the center. And then with that knowing you go back out, a maze has got wrong turns and mistakes and backtracks and relapse and all of that. And that's really not what the process is, is about. So the process is about really connecting with your authentic self. And that can mean start off, with learn your hunger and, and satiety signals. Uh, just notice them. Don't think you have to do anything about it at, at the very beginning. Just start to get to know and, and sometimes even just taking two bites at a time and going, okay, what happened to my hunger? Is it the same? Has it changed? And just really finding those sensations in the body. But it doesn't have to be linear. You can be doing that while you're getting to know, you know, your feelings and understanding the nature of feelings and just noticing, oh my gosh, that really ticks me off. I have no idea why it ticks me off, but I I, I know that that I don't like that. So I think that that's just a place to start knowing that ultimately, you're going to find the skills that are going to connect with the disordered eating. But you don't have to go right to that first and, and eliminate the behaviors because that's the hard route to just yeah. go in and try to get rid of behaviors without any understanding of what their job is. So I think the most important question to ask is what is my disordered eating doing for me? It's easy to see what is doing to me right? That's real easy. But what's it doing for me? And just start looking at that. Yeah, I really appreciate all of those pieces. And first, just describing it more as a train. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I find that, yeah, there are a lot of stops on this journey. And wherever you're at, you're exactly where you need to be. And I know sometimes it feels maybe hard to be there. But yeah. maybe that's just the stop that you're ready to be at. And you're not ready to take that next stop on that train track yet. And that's okay. And, you know, I, I love just your explanation of like putting it out of a job. <laughs> I think that's just spot on that. It's like, yeah, you're eating behaviors. They're doing a really important job for you. 
it's been really effective for a very long time, but more of those skills and more of the practices that we've been talking about today need to come online to be able to say, okay, I don't need that to support me anymore. And I have so much else that I can lean on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an old Zen saying that says, don't get stuck looking at the finger pointing to the moon. Look at the moon. Now, dogs don't understand symbolic language. So if you're pointing, they might be looking at your finger to see if there's a treat. But we understand. And, and so if you start to see that really the struggle with food is pointing you somewhere. Where is that? And what is that? Mm, so well said. And I just so appreciate your wisdom and your time today. And how can individuals keep in touch with you in this incredible work that you do in the world? Well, they can go to lightofthemooncafe.com. I have a newsletter that I send out and I have a lot of free materials and notices about upcoming events. And they're interested in any of the courses and they're working with a professional, a dietitian, a therapist, a coach they can get a 20% discount from that professional. So all the professional has to do is go to lightofthemooncafe.com also and get a code and then pass on that discount. So that's where they can find me. Awesome. And I'll make sure I put all of the links and even the links you said before in the show notes. So everyone has access to that. And just, again, thank you so much for sharing everything you did today. I am just so incredibly grateful for the work that you've put out in the world, both for, you know, it was impactful on my journey. And I know it's been hugely impactful with those that I work with as well. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. And to those who are listening, as always, if you have any questions about anything that we explored today, please reach out anytime. I'll put our contact in the show notes and I look forward to connecting with you all again real soon. Bye.